Hello, 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 ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Analytive Podcast. Today, I have Brian Kimball on the podcast with me. Brian Kimball is an experienced branding and marketing professional who is currently consulting and acts as a fractional head of marketing for clients in a variety of industries. Through the years, he's managed every aspect of marketing and brand development, advertising strategy, and placement. In addition to growing international markets and working alongside engineers through the entire product development cycle, he's worked with clients as diverse as the LA Kings, Sphero, Livestraw, and many others. In this conversation, we discuss marketing sports teams and specifically dive deep into how companies can create social impact. If you've wondered how to create and empower social impact within your business, this is the podcast for you. We dive deep into that topic, and I think you'll find it very, very interesting. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Brian Kimball. Brian, hey, thanks for coming on the Analytive Podcast. I'm super excited to talk to you today. Thanks, Tyler. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so let's start uh, with your background, uh, which is you know pretty deep and pretty varied from social impact to sports to uh, like lifestyle brands. I mean, we're going to talk a lot about that, but how did you sort of get into business and marketing? Like, what was that journey for you? What did that look like? Yeah, it's as a lot of people's careers kind of do is they zigzag and they, they find them, they find them kind of floating or going in a direction where you uh, sometimes never expected. So I actually took a complete pivot in my career, went to graduate school specifically for sports management and, uh, and found another concentration while I was at the university of Denver uh, that was very intriguing, but I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with it in business. And that was values-based leadership. Uh, so I really focused on sports management. I went into a, a branding agency called Adrenaline Downtown in Denver and focused my efforts there for about six years on creating strong, strong brands within sports. And, um, and it's, it was such an interesting time. We worked with professional sports teams, uh, non uh, so non governing bodies so non governmental bodies that were uh, for Olympic sports so USA Triathlon for example was a client of ours the uh, USA Water Polo and then the LA Kings hockey team so totally different focus necessarily and and different seasons and different everything and different audience groups so you learn quite a bit when you go through. Um, through process like that, through six years of kind of creating different brand strategies for various um, sports teams. And the one theme that you always kind of fall back on is that, uh, that it really is all about the customer. It's finding the customer where they are, uh, how they want to receive the information and then really uh, making sure that you're creating a relevant story or a relevant piece of content for them to consume at the time so that they can get to know your brand in a different way. So that happens with sports and some people love it when their team always wins. And some people actually love a team that always loses <laughs> and, and you just never know. So um, it's not that they love that, uh, that they lose, but they can't let go of that team. That is their team and it's a passionate thing. And that is a very unique thing with sports. 
So talk about, because, you know, I've, I work in branding a little bit. And so we've, you know, sold lots of products, lots of services that, but when you think about a sports team or a franchise, um, and you start to put a brand package together or uh, a proposal or a pitch, I mean, what are the things that you look at? Cause I think to me, it would seem so different than, you know, selling a product or service. Maybe it's not, but like, what, what does a brand package look like when you're doing it for a, a major sports team or even a minor sports team? That's a good question, but we're still talking about the five basic P's. Um, you know, they used to be the four P's and, and then we realized, oh, geez, there's people out there too. Um, and, and it really is, those are fundamentally the same. Now your approach and your focus on the different areas might be there, might be unique to the industry. Uh, but really the brand package, for example, for the LA Kings, we were able to rebrand the, the entire organization without changing the logo. And you do that by really focusing the messaging where it needs to be focused and creating not just an all new vision for the company, but a really fundamental different way to do business. So vision, mission, core values, everybody may have them within their organization, but how closely do you follow them? How, how much do you believe in them? And when you get true buy-in within an organization, they're all cylinders are working together towards a common goal. Uh, what, that was something that we were proud to have been able to accomplish because the, the leadership at LA Kings were so smart in how they wanted to approach really changing the organization that they followed the plan to a T and, and it worked and it worked. You go from, really not winning any more games and selling nine sellouts a season to 39 sellouts a season, two years later with still not making it to the playoffs. You know that it's not the changes and the, the business, the fundamental change in how you're talking about yourself and, and the core brand messaging is really what drove a significant return on the business. Mm -hmm. not the wins. There were no extra wins and there wasn't a huge story to tell on, on the record side of things. It was really fundamentally how they were talking to their customers and meeting them where they were and then rediscovering what they were all about as an organization. And you can do that if you're selling, if you're selling cups, mugs, or if you're selling tickets to a sports team. And it's really just about finding who you truly are and what you want the organization to stand for. Can you give uh, maybe, you know, either with the Kings or, or another example, um, like, cause abstract, like that makes sense, right? Oh yeah. Get your messaging in line, like figure out who you are. What did that look like? Um, f you know, going f with a brand like that from, you know, nine sellouts to 39 sellouts, what actually changed? I mean, you know, was it t titles and taglines? Was it engagement on social media? Was it where you were or how much you were spending on marketing? Like what were the levers that, um, a brand like that would pull to actually do that change. Cause again, it, it makes sense at an abstract level, but mm -hmm. what is it, what is one, you know, tactical or operational, what are those changes look like? That's a great question. The, when we first started working in the LA Kings is a, is an interesting case study because we started working with them. They had at least two campaigns running unintentionally at the same time. And they were, really different and they had no true message to them. It was all about buy our tickets, buy our tickets, buy our tickets. 
So if you create a, a campaign that is buy our milk, buy our cell phones, buy this, buy that, what does that truly do? That's very transactional and you're assuming that everybody is at the bottom of their their discovery funnel or whatever you want to call it, their, their transaction funnel and they're ready to buy when you're, when you're giving that message. And that's not always the case. So we took a step back and we interviewed everyone top down from the executives in the organization to the players, to the, to customers, focus groups. And we gathered all this information. They really told us that there was no true message that we, they had no idea what the LA King standard for. And that really made a difference when we went, we paused for a second and said, what do you want to stand for? Mm. And we wrote the, when I wrote the vision statement, that was the LA Kings will be the model of organizational excellence in sports. Mm. It didn't say that the LA Kings want to be the Stanley cup champions because Stanley cup champion, that is a result that's a result. Right. It's not a goal. So it's not, it's not this place where they want this particular um, kind of business that they want to be. It's a result of that kind of business. If they're the model of organizational excellence, championships happen. And they did uh, about five years later. So five and then seven years later. So fundamentally we focus the organization on, Here's the message. Here's what we want to be. What does it mean to be the model of organizational excellence? And then turn that into a mission statement that they can operate on, on a monthly, daily, quarterly basis. They can say, okay, does it, does it match up with what's in the mission statement? And these sound like, yeah, these are really, this is branding 101, right? But it's, when it actually is done, that's when it becomes advanced branding because you're getting the buy-in and getting your salespeople who have quotas to, to sell 5,000 tickets that day because the game is that night and they really need to hit their quota. You don't want those people to make compromises on your mission and vision. You want people to, you want those people to have that in mind already going into into that day, into that sales call, into wherever and say, does this, do the LA King stand for this? What am I doing to support this mission, this vision? And there are companies, there are a lot of companies out there that are doing that already fundamentally by who they are and how they have created their businesses and how these leaders are instilling values within the company themselves. Got it. And I think, yeah, there are a couple of threads there, right? I think one is the importance of getting buy-in organizationally, right? From mm -hmm. salespeople, from the janitor who's, you know, cleaning the bathrooms or whatever, right? Making right. sure that everyone's on the same page that way. Um, how did then that message translate to, to fans, right? Because you have fans who are loyal or at least, you know, most, many of them are loyal. But so you say, okay, we're going to create this organizational model of excellence like that doesn't necessarily resonate with fans but how did that obviously then the result if we're talking results was sellouts more ticket sales um how did that you know excellence translate then into into the actual like business outcome of more ticket sales well we took the 
the passion of the organization and of the core fans really, really, really focused on the core fans that, and there were focus groups where we had grown men of 50 years old crying because they were so passionate about the LA Kings and having <laughs> tickets, season tickets for 30 years and saying, he didn't want to lose. There was actually a guy who did not want to lose his season ticket priority and had the money in the bank for season tickets or for groceries. And he bought the season tickets and, and then made it work with the groceries. And I just, that level of passion is rarely found with any brand in the CPG space, for sure, especially if you're, and then if you go into SaaS and B2B products, people are just not that passionate about it. Right. And, and so you're dealing with that level of passion. And then you have the, the players who love the sport. You have the people within the organization who love sports in general, but really do support the LA Kings brand. And you have a really great leader in at the time. And now it's Luke Robitaille, who is this hall of fame left winger who used to play for the LA Kings with Gretzky. Hmm. And he, so, you know, the leader leadership knows the sport, the business, they know what to do. They just need a roadmap. And so the create the campaign that we created was pride equals passion equals power mm. had nothing to do with wins is abstract, but it was the words themselves elicit meaning differently in each individual person. So very passionate, hardcore fan is going to be, it, it will look at that and say, that's something to me. I'm passionate that gives them power. So we turned that actually into the campaign. So the power and the passion that the fans give in the games fueled the players. We yeah. created all the conversations, uh, everything from all the, the messaging for season ticket holders for regular game day tickets. We tried to, uh, change the language altogether. And instead of saying you're a fan, you are a team member. So trying to be way more inclusive with the people who are going to the games because they definitely help the result of the game. When there's a lot more cheering going on in the stadium, the players react to that. There's a lot more emotion behind it. So creating that, it took some time. It took a full season to do that, but it worked. It worked. And we, you stick to that campaign, that one campaign, not two, three, change the message. What do we do here, there, the other thing, but you may make an integrated campaign from an outdoor billboard all the way through to a digital ad and make sure that the messaging is consistent. And that's what we did. So that when you, when you consistently talk about yourself in the same way, that's how you create your brand, right? Your brand promise is yeah. what you are going to deliver to your customers. What value are you going to deliver at the end of the day? And, and that was their promise. Yeah. So, yeah. I love how, cause a, a couple of things stuck out to me. The first one is with those words, you, it was, you know, typically in branding, you know, or at least in sales, you try and avoid 
vagueness, but I think you guys intentionally left it vague enough where players, uh, fans or team members, as you call them, right. Anybody could sort of fill in their own ideas of what that meant, right. They can visualize Mm -hmm. what this, you know, pride and power means. Um, really love that. And then of course, building energy in the room, like anyone who's been to, whether it's a concert, you know, sporting event, like, you know, when the, the audience, the fans are on board with you. Yeah. It's a, it's a very, um, almost spiritual experience in some ways, right? When everyone's on the same page, it's cheering um, mm-hmm. versus you've probably been, I know I've been to sporting events and concerts where it was kind of dead um, and the dynamic changes and the performance changes, whether it's athletic performance or, or musical performance. Yeah, exactly. That's, um, that's, hits it right on the head. Uh, you're, you're pulling from that energy, but what we tried to do was to fuel that to the broader audience, right? We had this core group of passionate fans that were going to be there and cheering, but they were getting disappointed with losses. Mm-hmm. Organizationally, they were going through some changes to make that better. And that needed to be communicated to those core fans so we didn't lose those. So you have market share, then you have attrition. And you, and with sports, it's really important since in hockey, there are 82 games in a season and 41 of those are at home. You have 30,000 seats you have to sell for 41 times in a season is not a small number. Right, yeah. And you're, 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 you're looking at that plus uh, club seats and all the other revenue that you're looking at. And, and the value of the organization is in what it brings, the pride within sports that it brings to a city, mm-hmm. to its fans. And that goes back, you know, for thousands of years is, is the athletes within Sparta competing brought prestige to the city of Sparta, to the city state. So that's something that the LA Kings weren't doing for a long time. They were kind of this retirement city for hockey players that they would go and just play in the sunny Southern California. Right. And, and it wouldn't worry about winning. Uh, and they turned it into a very competitive team who performs and is passionate about, they turned the fans in the city into a really passionate fan base where they had a larger turnout for their NHL championship uh, parade downtown than the Lakers did. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. So after your experience in sports, so kind of back to your story a little bit, right? Thanks for letting me take that rabbit trail. I (laughs) uh, learned a lot there. Um, After your kind of foray into sports, uh, where did you go from there then? So within the agency at Adrenaline, we were exploring various potential partners that we could bring in and work with. And uh, since we had worked with USA triathlon and USA water polo and a few different national governing bodies, and then we have uh, these professional sports teams, we, and we were passionate outdoorsmen. And uh, we thought, well, why don't we work within the outdoors? Uh, So I started to go to the outdoor retailer expo, which is, was in Salt Lake city at the time and started to just get to know people just get to know the industry what makes it tick what do they need what are potential customer base you know how do we how would we fit there as an agency to help brands grow Mm -hmm. to help people who are passionate about their activity their leisure time activities um how would we help them 
to, uh, to do better. So in that process, got to know the outdoor industry really well. Uh, I have some really great friends going back all the way to that first year that I started to go to uh, the outdoor retailer. And now that it's in Denver, uh, over those 10 years, give or take, uh, the industry has shifted, has really changed. It went from industry insiders to much more open, focused on sustainability, circular economy, social impact. How is this industry as a whole going to change the world? Mm -hmm. Really led by a couple of brands that had it as, as their core mission from the very beginning, but then started to become more vocal over, over the last few years. So my journey was really through personal relationships and getting to know people and really truly understanding the industry before I just jumped in. And I had the luxury of doing that because I, I wanted to work with those brands from an agency perspective, but then what was I going to do with that at the end of the day? And, um, uh, it, there actually was a, a few years where I diverted away from that, went into startups, worked for SaaS company, helped build that from ground up, and then a toy robot company at Sphero, and you know helped people have fun in the STEM space and and explore the educational opportunities for for robots in STEM, and then landed within LifeStraw. So LifeStraw being a lifestyle brand or a water filtration brand within the outdoor lifestyle space. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so many threads. So let's maybe start, um, you know, we've talked before, the stuff you did at Sphero was, uh, was really cool, but I think for the sake of time, we might have to, I kind of want to jump into LifeStraw. Um, so for people who don't know, yeah, water filtration, as you said, probably most commonly known for literally a uh, straw or a large straw that you can put in water and you, you drink it. Um, and then it filters it out as you, as you're drinking it. And so what did you, you know, what did you do in life straw? What were your roles there? So in at life straw, I was the head of cause marketing, uh, which was the official title, but in reality, it was the head of the department for retail sales, which means that I oversaw all sales and marketing for North America and Europe and coincidentally South Africa for the product and cause marketing. The reason why they, they called it that it was a Swiss based company. So their titles were different, <laughs> um, but they, they were a social impact or a, actually a public health company at the very beginning. That's where they started. And the history of LifeStraw is very interesting. You go to LifeStraw, go to LifeStraw.com and read the history uh, for all you listeners out there um, just to learn more. Cause if I go into that, it's, it's another, it's another 15 minutes of explaining how they got there, but sure. it's really interesting. And it includes uh, a strong history with the, the Carter foundation. So president Jimmy Carter, <laughs> um, getting to where they're at right now, uh, turning a public health product into a retail product made a lot of sense for them to fund what they were still going to continue to do on the public health side. So cause marketing in the title related to funding, essentially the public health efforts within Africa at the time, and then expanding to India, Mexico, China now. So, 
So that's uh, essentially my role was to manage the distribution and marketing of all uh, livestock products in North America and Europe. Okay. So then social impact and, and cause marketing in general, let's, let's talk about that because, you know, I think there's a lot of companies now that are sort of figuring this out and walking this line. You know, you have probably the big outdoor brands like you talked about. Um, I, I don't know which ones you're referring to, but probably like Patagonia, REI, like some of the big names that people are familiar with. Um, when companies think about social impact, like what does that mean from a, from a marketing perspective? What are the things that um, companies should think about when they want to build social impact right into their DNA or at least into their marketing and branding? Yeah, that that's a really loaded question. Uh, that I, I'll I'm going to split up a little bit because there are existing companies that want to do this, and then there are new companies that want to get into it, mm-hmm. or they want to just include a social impact message or some kind of program into their company. So, from the marketing perspective, really. The head of marketing is the, the advocate for the consumer internally is, is that you've got to be able to understand your customer enough to be able to stand up and say, our customer doesn't know what you're talking about, or this is going to resonate with our customers. I like that. Can you say that again? So the, the head of marketing is the customer advocate, or you said it more eloquently. I think what, what can you repeat that? Cause I think it's important. Yeah, uh, well, essentially just that is that the head of marketing has to be the advocate for the consumer's perspective internally at at any point during product development, during your marketing and advertising efforts, when you're trying to locate and isolate the places where you're going to place an ad or the keywords that you're going to use. You need to understand what the customer's perspective is and where where they are. Meet them where they're at. So when it comes to social impact and creating a social impact program, what's going to resonate with your customers may be different than you expect. It doesn't have to be hundred percent alignment on your actual product, hmm. but it does, it can have, or should have hundred percent alignment with your professional or personal beliefs. Uh, it can be something that if you think about Tom's, and the evolution of Tom's right, the company, really yeah. the shoe company is the, the really the first to publicly out there just say one for one program. Right. And there are some issues or some benefits to one for one programs. Um, and, and those can be discussed in a later podcast, but what they ended up doing was to expand their social impact because Blake Mykoski, the, the founder, he decided this is ridiculous. We have to do something about gun violence. So he created an entire program to lobby against, uh, or not against, but to, to change some of the laws around gun rights. So, um, of which I actually participated on the Hill uh, last year. So that was kind of interesting is to see this program executed on a, on the ground because they didn't, it didn't have anything to do with shoes, but it had a lot to do with their passion as leadership within the organization and what they wanted to, what kind of social change did they want to make? 
and now they have multiple pro projects. They have, they're doing water. Uh, they're still providing shoes. They're, they felt that they could expand because they, um, because they could, they should expand their programs. So existing companies, even if they have a fundamental social impact program, they can expand that outside and they can find other ways to, to be impactful. New companies, when trying to create an, a social impact program, need to understand the difference between social impact and CSR or, you know, like a, a corporate social responsibility program. Gotcha. And a corporate social responsibility program is really just to activate your employees to give back to the communities in which they serve. That is not a social impact. That is, that is not necessarily what fundamental, what fundamentally a lot of these companies like Patagonia is, are doing. They're finding a cause and getting behind a cause and making it a fundamental part of their business. That's different from a CSR program can be lightly funded typically as multi-billion dollar fortune 100 companies. Plenty of them have CSR programs, hundred thousand employees go out and they volunteer eight hours in a day. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not what we're talking about here. So that does have to be at the beginning of your understanding of creating a social impact program. Um, you have to under, have that understanding and make sure that you're ready to, you're ready to create a different way about operating the business. You're ready to follow a different path than the standard shareholder return message that, you know, the Milton Friedman and, and a lot of corporate heads really followed for the last 30 years. And now even the business roundtable came out just a few months ago and said, shareholder value can mean a lot of things. And it doesn't necessarily mean financial return, mm -hmm. which means we're now expanding this into doing good and making it a good business. So doing good is good business for a lot of companies like Patagonia, like REI closing for the fifth year in a row on black Friday and making sure people are getting outside and, and, and following through with their core messaging of enjoying the outside. So I think when you consider how to create a, a social impact program, it's, there's so many complexities to, or so many op opportunities, I should say, instead of complexities uh, to those programs, because we have so many social issues going on that um, it really comes down to the individual business and what they want to do. So let's talk like small, small business, right? Because obviously corporations, when they do, you know, the big changes like REI, they have um, whole teams of people that are uh, working on on this and, you know, they create a brand strategy around it. But, you know, if you're a startup with uh, a product, handful of products, um, let's just say consumer packaged goods or at least consumer goods of some sort, you know, if you're a small outdoor company, you sell what, you know, custom made sleeping bags, right? How do you think about uh, social impact on that scale? Because I think a lot of our audience is going to be in that where they're like, oh yeah, I run an e-commerce store. I run a small business. I run a service business. What, tips um would you kind of give them where they're not saying oh yeah we can devote a couple million dollars to do this but we want to still make social impact an important part of our business yeah that see that's a good question because bandwidth 
can be limited, right? And mm-hmm. and revenue obviously is always tight on the, on some of those levels. So on the basic level, what you see a lot of people doing is donating or or signing up as a one percent for the planet member. They said one percent of revenues goes to uh, this organization, which one percent for the planet was founded by Patagonia, and what it does is it pools money together and then distributes it to nonprofit organizations doing conservation work around the world. And what is interesting about that program is that you get the logo, you get the brand recognition, and you get to say that you have uh, an impact in the world. But what you don't have is the ability to say exactly what that impact is. Mm. So there's a, there is a bit of a disconnect and it, and I think that disconnect is going to become more evident the more that people demand transparency. And in that, they know that it's not just greenwashing, that they can see exactly where that's going. So as you're starting your company now, you can actually register in almost all the states that you can be a public benefit corporation. So as a public benefit corporation, you're already in, you're creating your business as a business that considers everything from its employees to its customers, to its shareholders as well. And its supply chain considers all of those things in financial decisions, in business decisions. And so the CEO, as they grow the company and they become this behemoth and have a board and shareholders and those shareholders would not be able to vote out the CEO for making a decision that benefits somebody other than the, the financial stakeholders. So other than the, the shareholders of the company and right now in a public company, they can do that easily. They can say, well, you're not making the best financial decisions for this company. You're out public benefit corporation. You actually have that legal protection, but on a, on another level to verify or to validate what you're doing as a company, as a public benefit company is to create it is to get that B Corp certification and to get a B Corp certification. It's quite a lift of an effort to get there. Uh, and really to do it, you don't want to do it in your first year as a business. Uh, you can, you can follow all the steps and make sure you're gathering all the information that you need in order to get the certification down the line. But it's likely that the effort would, would just be very difficult for you to get that certification, uh, given all the other challenges of operating a first year business. So, when you say uh, a custom-made sleeping bag company, for example, uh, there are programs where, well, Patagonia just launched, just announced a program where they're actually taking remnant fabrics from uh, apparel that was not repairable. They couldn't just wash it, turn it around and resell it. Uh, it's basically would end up normally in the landfill. Mm-hmm. They're taking those and cutting fabric pieces out and then recreating new unique items and reselling those. And, and that's interesting because the longer you keep a, a, an apparel item in use, the longer you have it in use, the lower the carbon footprint of that item is. And clothing, it takes an incredible amount of energy to create. The amount of water that it 
takes to just to create a pair of jeans would be astounding. If you take a look at that, just Google how many gallons of water it takes to create a pair of jeans is it's a little, it's a little crazy. So longer you can keep those jeans in circulation, even if they're not jeans, they turn them into a bag mm-hmm. or into a, a, you know, a backpack, a pair of gloves or whatever it ends up being that ends up extending the life of that fabric and creates a little bit more of your circular economy with the, with apparel. And so there's a lot of different options. I mean, I, I think I kind of, it sounded like it was going on a tangent, but I was really trying to, to impress the fact that there's so many options. You have to find out what's right for you and what your skill set you'd be able to execute on, I think. Yeah. And it sounds like, uh, you know, for a lot of these, it depends on the founder, right. And what his or her unique, um, interests are, you know, is your interest more environmental? Is it, you know, social dealing with maybe homelessness or drug addiction? I mean, there are a million issues, right. That, that we can pick. And I think each of those, and then also looking at the assets and the resources of the company, um, obviously a company like Patagonia, it's really easy because they make clothing. I mean, that's what they do. So they can take cloth, right. From t-shirts or jeans or whatever. And it's easy for them to recycle. Like it's not far afield, you know, whereas if they tried something, you know, um, like recycling cooking oil for them wouldn't make any sense, right? Like that's right. just something that's not within their uh, their core competency. So it sounds like to me, it's a lot of figuring out what your core competencies are and what your passions are as a company and finding where that intersects, right, with social impact. Yeah, exactly. Um, there's a, a great example of a company out of Boulder, Colorado that created, it had two sewing machines and the will essentially to upcycle as much material as they possibly could out of the vinyl billboards that are coming down off of advertising. Those, all that vinyl is terrible for the environment. What could you do with it? It's very durable. So they started creating bags, custom bags, and then they got into taking uh, bike tubes, spent bike tubes. It's a ton of rubber that could still be used turning those into wallets and bags and backpacks and accessories for bikes. So you have all these extra accessories and panniers and uh, things that you can put out on your bike that are made from bike tubes that were on a different bike at one other time. Uh, So you have this way to upcycle. Upcycling is one great way for small companies to get very inexpensive materials, raw materials, and then turn it into something new and resell it. Keep it, keep it going, keep it out of the land. Yeah. And that's, you know, those are, uh, again, to, to reiterate what you were saying also is to say that the founders really have to find what they're passionate about, what their skill set is um, and what makes sense financially, because if you can't sustain the company, you're not going to be doing very good for very long. Right. So then talk about, so maybe you're not a founder, right? So talk to the people who are in an organization, maybe they're higher up, maybe they're the director of marketing, right? Where social impact is something that they're passionate about, that they see perhaps even a marketing opportunity in, but the executive team, the board, the leadership of the company maybe isn't fully bought in. How do you 
measure this? How do you justify it from whether it's, you know, dollars and cents, a good impact? Like if, if you see an opportunity here, but you're not the guy or gal making that final decision, how do you sell this to executives, right? How do you sell it to the people who have to kind of give the stamp of approval that yes, this will work? Well, more and more marketing has a definitive ROI and measurements that you're making, right? So you, used to say, well, we have these things called brand equity and recognition and awareness, and we have to run research constantly to figure out if that's all working. And you can do that if you can afford it. But now you have very measurable ways to see if your marketing and your messaging is working. Highly targeted, hyper-targeted ways to reach customers. And so from a marketing standpoint, say director of marketing wants to pitch an idea up, really needs to show the business impact or the potential business impact of it through data. And there's a lot of external or secondary research that's been done to show how specific programs can support the business objective, uh, selling items or, um, or at least in uh, creating new awareness within audiences that normally wouldn't even pay attention to that brand. And that it's, it's a really tough, it's a tough answer to give because if the leadership doesn't believe in doing good as a way of doing business, it's likely that that company will not succeed at that program. They will have to get behind it and Yes, you may be able to sell it up and convince them. Uh, so to convince them, get past the financials first. Make sure that it does make sense for you as a, as a marketer to put your budget behind a program to reach customers in a way that not only sells product, but creates this impact program. And when you create the impact program, you can, you can do a little bit that's, that tries to pull from the executive's kind of perspective, say, what are they passionate about on the side? Or, you know, if they're outdoorsmen or, but they just are not in conservation, then that's a little bit easier shift for people who they get the benefit of the outdoors, but they just don't right now actively support any kind of conservation effort. Okay, well, we can, we can create that opportunity. But, you know, depending on how far away that disconnect might be, it might be a little bit hard to sell. So it, I, it's a tough, there's no, there's no single answer to that question. Sure. Kind of sure. Say. So then kind of another uh, thing that I think about when we think about social impact. So there are social impact issues that sort of almost everyone can get behind, right? So planting trees, you know, most people aren't like, oh, I, I don't want any more trees. But then there are issues that can be politically charged, you know, like you mentioned guns. I mean, there, and there's dozens and dozens of these, and it seems like more and more issues are becoming highly politically charged. What are the, the downsides? What, I guess, cost benefits should companies think about um, before they kind of start down one of these issues that might be a bit more politically charged? Like what are the things to watch out for and to think about? Well, I think one thing really have to remember as a marketer is that if you don't, and we talked about this earlier, if you don't plant a flag in the ground and say, this is what we stand for, this is the kind of company we are, then people 
customers will look at your company and not understand what you are. Hmm. They will think, well, I don't know. They, they say all these different things. They want me to do a bunch of different things. I don't, I don't get it. Planting a flag in the ground, whether it be on social issues or uh, very specific industry related product issues is really important. And yes, it does polarize at times, but think about the understanding of what you stand for, for those people who do support the issue. They will, are there enough of those people to say, we've got a viable business here, regardless of whether we lose those couple million potential customers, we've got 10 million over here that really believe in this program or really believe in this issue. And they want to support companies who support this issue. That's, that's where you have to have that understanding. If it's, if it's really a vague problem that you're trying to solve for, and you're not very clear with how you're going to do it, that is not going to help you or the customer to connect. So, um, so I would say that when you're approaching polarizing issues, don't be afraid to, as long as you go hundred, as long as you go all in, you can't do this with half the effort and think that you're still going to be able to have the full result. That's not going to work with social issues and people will see right through it. It's greenwashing. It's creating programs just to sell more product. People will Pepsi tried to do this and got Ken, Kendall Jenner up uh, with a Pepsi can and trying to hand it to a police officer in this 30 second ad that was completely fake. And it backlashed like no other on social media. So there's, there's backlash that can come immediate after launching a program, or you can, you can get it a lot over time, but you really have to, if Pepsi were to really get behind the social issues that were actually at stake in that, in that video and not be so blind to the actual issue, probably would have had a different result in terms of support and, and instead of almost entirely negative feedback from that. Yeah. And I think it is, it's that authenticity, right? It's easy for an agency to come in and create an ad, you know, where, uh, you know, a celebrity hands a, a soda can to a police officer, but are they actually, you know, doing things for, you know, whether it's, you know, police violence, pl prison reform, like any of those kind of core issues, are they trying to actively find ways to help? And I think the, the main thing that made people mad was that, no, it just seems like, yeah, Pepsi's so great. Look at us. We're just standing for this issue, but we're not actually doing anything. We have no skin in the game, right? When it comes to, to this particular issue. Right. We're just trying to jump on a bandwagon, which you don't, you don't want to have that perception so and it's better to not even approach the issue if you're not committed to it. Right. Um, then to, you know, then to, to, and to stay away from it, not have a comment rather than to comment in a so-so way that it ends up becoming completely inauthentic and you can see right through it. Right. And I think the other thing as we're talking about this is tying in what you said earlier when we were talking about the Kings uh, and marketing people in general being sort of the biggest advocate, 
right? For the consumer is understanding what your consumers care about, you know? And so people who love the outdoors, for example, it's a natural extension that those people care about conservation. They care about making sure that, you know, national parks and all these, you know, wilderness areas are, uh, are taken care of, that the planet's taken care of. Like that's, mm -hmm. you know, so in a way they're not just advocating for themselves, but they're advocating for what their consumers want as well. And I think that's really important because, um, there's times where maybe a marketing executive comes in who's different, right? Or has different opinions than the core consumers. And I think that can be really dangerous, right? If someone is actually <clears throat> taking uh, their, their message, right? That they are passionate about, but it's not what their consumers are passionate about. And I think you can have um, a miss there. So I like what you said earlier about being a, uh, being a consumer advocate. Yeah. And there are certainly times where you have executives who, who are leading the charge, not necessarily ones who, who did customer research and say, our customers really want this. It's finding that place where the customer says one thing that this is their problem. This is, here's the problem that they're currently having, but you're really looking at that and saying, actually, you know, your problem isn't that electric cars don't have a long enough uh, distance or, or strong enough battery, your problem is, is that you need to, you don't understand the availability of charging stations or something like there's a, maybe a disconnect in communication, but one brand who's doing it really, really well right now, I think, and they came out as the very largest B Corp in the world is Danon. They're huge. Like the yogurt company. The right? yogurt, yogurt, silk, <clears throat> Um, silk brand, uh, nut milks and alternative milks, et cetera. They have uh, really, really gone all in on this. The executive, if you, if you pay attention to the messaging coming out of France is, is they are fully committed to changing, to becoming carbon neutral, to changing their entire supply chain, to make it more sustainable. And it is fundamentally a part, it has become fundamentally a part of their business just in the last few years, but it takes, I'm sure it took them over a year to just prepare to submit for the B Corp certification prior to then announcing it, et cetera. So this has been in the works. And during that process, although I'm not privy to the internal communications, I would imagine there was a lot of internal communication on here's what we're doing. Here's why I know it's a lot of extra work to create these extra reports for B Corp certification, but here's why we're doing it. This is what we're doing to become a different kind of company. And this is, you know, when you, you talk about Simon Sinek, uh, sometimes like his quotes come up a lot, right. And you're finding your why, right. And his whole why, book yeah. about that starting, start with why, but find it first. Mm-hmm. Some people don't find it. They, they know exactly what they do as a business. Uh, and then if you back up a little bit more and you say, uh, well, why are we even in business? And that's kind of what we're talking about in this entire uh, podcast is really, why are we doing this? Why do we exist as a company? Uh, and, and, or what do we want to do about and then taking that why and saying, what do we want to do about it? What do we want to do? Do we need to improve it? Do we need to support it? Do we need to change it? How is this going to, going to work for us? So yeah, it's a very interesting time to, 
to be a part of marketing within social impact companies for sure. Yeah. And then, so if you would talk very briefly about B Corps, you know, obviously you said first year, probably not a good idea. What's the advantage. So you can, you know, be a good company, right. Still form as an LLC or, you know, S Corp, C Corp, like the standard company format. Um, and you can still do all of these things, right? You can manage your supply chain well. You can, you know, uh, treat your employees, right? You can do all that. What are the advantages, especially for like small companies to actually becoming a B Corp? Because it is a lot of extra work. Um, do you have any idea what the benefit is other than maybe uh, a stamp of approval? Yeah, I, I think it's validation that you're doing things in the right way to get there, to get to, to become... A, a more sustainable or thoughtful company and it's doing things for the triple bottom line is what it used to be called is, you know, it's the, the people, the planet and profits. And you're thinking about how you're impacting all of those as a business, but then you're having a third party come to you and say, you're not doing enough here. You're not, you, you need to add some benefits for your employees to really get your score up here because although you're doing all these great things for the environment, your employees are suffering. You're not going to have them around for very long. And that's a part of that, that those are your people and those people are your biggest advocates to, to, to create everything else. So uh, I think even as a smaller company, the benefit would be uh, there's a huge strong brand recognition now. I mean, the growing brand recognition, I should say within the B Corp community and the customers who are looking for those products at retail, for example, two products in front of you and you turn the packaging around and you see one is a certified B Corp and the other one says basically only that it has a sustainable packaging or, or other, it checks other boxes, but fundamentally you're, you're comparing apples to apples. And then you look and you have the one differentiating factor being a B one as a B Corp. It gives the customers peace of mind that they're buying from a company that is doing good work and paying attention to all the different areas of their business. Uh, and maybe I'm looking into it, into it more because I'm more fully aware of what the a B Corp does, but from a consumer standpoint, they know that B Corps are good companies. Mm -hmm. Well, so, I'm, I remember when we talked about them in business school, you know, five years ago and they were just getting started, but now I see it on more and more packaging. And I think people are becoming more aware, even if they can't explain like, Oh, here's exactly what a B Corp is. They know like B Corp equals good. Right. And so I think there's a certain, a certain brand recognition that is becoming uh, popular with it. Yeah. And that's only going to grow the more and more B Corps there were. And now there are 30 over 3,500 certified B Corps and there's a vast number, vast majority of companies who are applying for B Corp certification who do not get it. <laughs> and they go through that process and hope they get it, but they realize during, during that and with their score that comes back that says, we need to improve. If they're fundamentally, if, if becoming a B Corp or a certified B Corp is that important to them, they're looking at those metrics saying, here are the areas of improvement. They're using it as a tool to become a better company, not just put the stamp on a package and say, we're going to sell more units because of this. Yeah. It's, it's like fundamentally like to change. Company. Yeah. 
yeah. like to become a better company. Exactly. And, and to be that better company means that, that they're changing the way that they're operating. And like I said, I, I mentioned employees earlier, it's, it has to do with supply chain. It has to do with a lot of different areas of that and supply chain. Um, there are other tests to measure how sustainable your supply chain is like the HIG index, which is only a few years old, but, and it started within apparel and footwear, but is expanding now. So with, tens of thousands of factories already measuring their sustainability on the HIG index. You can take that as a brand and use that within your measurement of how sustainable you are, you're building your brand and how you're sustainable. You're building your products and retailers are going to start looking at that Hmm. and saying, what's your HIG index as a brand? How, how sustainable are you? And you, the B Corp is how operationally sound you are as a good company. Now we've got the HIG index with how sustainable is your supply chain and, and different scores that go along with that. So it's interesting to see the third party validation is what we, I think, see as a result of all the greenwashing of three to five years ago after Tom's really got lifted up and everybody was like, Oh, we have a program too. And we have a program and, and this is going on. And then, you know, we're sustainable, but they're really not. And that very quickly became apparent that people were, or companies were greenwashing their products in order to try to sell more. And the trust within that sector started to just erode. People are saying, no, yeah, but how do I know? Who's a sustainable company or not? Who, how do I know who's doing good? So B Corp is a solution for that. Higindex is another solution for that. And I'm sure you're going to see a couple of others come along the way. Like there's fair trade, fair trade USA. Okay. That's a part of your supply chain, but that's just your product sourcing. So there's a lot of uh, different ways that you as a brand can prove from the very beginning that you are in line with your customer's values. For sure. Good. Well, Brian, this has been, this has been awesome. Uh, where can people connect with you, find out more about you? Do you have a website, social media, whatever you want to give? Um, right now I am uh, a little bit of like the cobbler's son uh, with no <laughs> shoes. So the website is under development. I actually do have one and, um, but it is under development and, and, Connecting on LinkedIn is probably the best place for me. Uh, so, and what can people search for to find you on LinkedIn? Uh, Brian with a Y and uh, Kimball K I M B E L L, and uh, you can search uh, for me there. You should be able to find me. Cool, Brian. Uh, thanks a ton. I learned a ton about social impact, B Corps, uh, sports. Man, we covered some really really good stuff. So, thank you so much for your time. Hey, you bet. Thank you. 